tihei mauri ora. Kia whai wahi au i kōnei ki te tukumihi atu, ki tērā o ngā kaituhi Māori a hone tūwhare kua matiatura. E te kaituhi no roto mai o Ngāpuhi, Ngāti Korokoro, te Pōpoto, kei te tangitanga kau mō tō wehengātu. Haere e koro, haere ki te kāinga o ngā mātua tipuna ki tua o Pairau. Ki te moenga te whakārihia, moi mai rā, moi mai rā, moi mai rā. Kuahinga te tōtara o te waunui a tāne. E te iwi, nau mai hoki mai anō ki te ahikā. Ko tānera tūta tēnei, kia ora tātou katoa. This is the first show of the year for Te Ahikā, Radio New Zealand National's Māori Features Programme. E tēnei wiki, we reflect on the life of poet Hone Tūwhare, who passed away over a week ago in Dunedin. We also hear from an organisation that is researching puha and its commercial potential, and former Radio New Zealand broadcaster Paul Diamond has written a book about the life of Makarete Papakura, otherwise known as Guide Maggie. Hone Tūwhare no Napohi is recognised as one of our country's greatest poets. Tufare, who was also a playwright and writer of fiction, was born in Kaikohe in 1922. His father was a person who encouraged his son's interest in the written and spoken word. Hone Tufare himself said he enjoyed the way the Old Testament used words to describe things, depicting imagery. In July of 2001, Hone Tufare spoke to former Radio New Zealand broadcaster John Campbell about his art, his life and the book he penned in 2001, Piggyback Moon. This wonderful old man is a bit of hard of hearing now, the result of years spent working with a rivet gun as a boiler maker. He's also slightly better at remembering events in the more distant past, childhood, developing a love of words, learning about politics as a young worker. These things are fresh to him still. But Hone Tufare is always full of words and experiences, and when you're with him, one story dances into another, dances. His Tamata Estate Laureate collection, Piggyback Moon, features many of his interests. Food, about which he writes with a joyous, tummy-slapping, lip-smacking enthusiasm. The sea, water having featured so often in his poetry. And also in this collection, his friend Shirley Grace, actress, photographer and artist, who died of breast cancer and whose experiences are part of Gaylene Preston's new movie, Titless Wonders. We began by talking about his friendship with Shirley. Well, she's a uh, she, uh, Wellingtonian. And um, she introduced. Well, we had a we we had a trip over in the islands mm. together, you know, Soames. <laughs> <laughs> Soames Island. <laughs> so we've been to the islands. You know. <laughs> yeah. She said, "Come on, I'll take you for a picnic." <laughs> so I said, "Where?" I said, "Oh, well, we've got our own islands here." <laughs> so I said, "Yeah." And, I said, and then when I got on this ferry, I said, "That's Soames. That used to be a bloomin'. Uh, we used to put." Uh, um, Character like you know we were there were suspicious characters during the war you know Japanese or Germans. Hone, she painted a beautiful painting of your dad bathing your mum. Oh yes, I'll say. Oh, good on you, mate. Yeah, you remember that? That's a beautiful. Oh, painting. thank you yeah, for remembering that. Yeah. Yes. 
Tell, uh, tell me about your mum, because she died when you were only five and a yeah, half. Mm, sure. What do you remember of her? Well, she's, uh, she was uh, a widow of another chap called Mari, uh, Mari chap called Maihi, uh, which in English is Marsh, Marsh, and... Uh, well, then, he went away, Mr Marsh, my, he went away in the First World War and got himself killed, huh? Now there's the widow. Mm. Attractive still, mm. very attractive. And uh, you know, my dad hooked on to her, you know, very quickly. And, uh, they had five. Had five kids? Five kids. Five. And the second time, and, I don't know, they all, one fell into a cesspit, you know, where you bury your rubbish, you know, and dig a hole in the ground, and then it gets half filled with water, drowned in it. The other one right, rat poison. Well, that's my own, my own. Yeah, your brothers triple, and sisters. Yeah, yeah. Of, of the five children that your mum and dad had... I was the only one that survived it. The, the other four all died by the time they were two, They, they were died, some, accident, some accidentally like that, you know, some some maybe maybe the, the, the pile-up of births one after the other, you know, they might have uh, weakened them, you know, and her. Mm. And so that uh, she died too quite early. When you were five and, yeah, five and a half? Yeah. Do you remember her very well? What do you remember just, of her? Just vaguely of her, just vaguely. Just that particular incident I remember. When, you, when your uh, dad was bathing your mum? Uh, yeah, and the reason I remember that part was because I was just standing by, you know, sucking my thumbs or looking at her, you know, sort of, mum, having a wash, you know, which I hated. Uh, but uh, but then I had my finger in the door jam, you know, and somebody happened to come in and see and close it, and then there was a hell of a scream, you know. So that 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 fixed that image, okay? You remember? <laughs> I remember getting <laughs> your finger. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell uh, me, tell me about your dad, Horne. What what was he a good man? He was uh, he was uh, liberal minded in the sense that. Uh, he was. Um, he went to Tauti College, uh, Mary Boys yes, College, yes, in yes. Hawke's Bay. That's a Church of England, I think. Yes, yes. And she was Mormon. Mm. You see, well, I mean, when you have that kind of toleration, they never try to uh, drag each other away from me at their own spiritual, uh, you know, uh, church. Uh, but they accepted each other. You know, that's very strange. Mm, mm. Very strange. Mm. You know. And and when your mum died, yes. you were up in the far north near Kaikohe then. Yes, yes. And then you and your dad came back down to Auckland. Yes, it, we it, came, came, came. Oh, well, we were all in Auckland one day. Yes, yes. And then we were your, all, your, we were all in, and, and all the kids, all the kids, all my half brothers and sisters were going to Napier Street School, and um, and I was going to the uh, Campbell's Kindergarten. Mm, Campbell's, mm, Campbell's <laughs> Kindergarten. That's a good name for a kindy hornet. <laughs> Campbell's, Campbell's Kindergarten. That, by Victoria Park, yes, a little bit yeah, further along. Yeah. See. I believe the building might still be there. It is still there. It's is an it? old brick building. It's God, still there. Well, I mean, yeah. the name will be up, you yes, know, because it's been yeah. concrete, you yeah. know. And when you came back to Auckland with your dad after your mum died, it was the Depression, and that would have been quite a hard time, wouldn't it, Horny? There wouldn't have been much money about The only work was available, so the, uh, the, the, the Chinese had started off market gardening in a place area called Two Areas, Three areas. One was Avondale, yeah. uh, Rosebank Road. And oh, so he worked for Chapman. Uh, Chapman was a Pākehā bloke, and he ploughed for the Websters because the Websters gave him an, an old tin whare, you know, a house for us to live in, you see. And they were hard case. I mean, uh, the, the young man was a young hard case beggar. And they let him, uh, you know, like... Uh, they said, oh, what are you going to what do? What do you want to plough for? They gave him a bit of a place a tin shack and so on you know, for me to live, he and I to live and down below near the mangroves was a bit of flat land 
and he asked if he might use a plough and a horse. They said, yes, but what are you going to do? We've got ice on a bill of garden down here. They said, that rough place down there? Yes, of course, it's OK. Well, you watch me. So he did it, you know, and he planted coomeras. They were huge. Oh, you know, the foul creek comes by, you see, so it's been enriched by that all those years. Was it a happy childhood? I tell you, I tell you it was. Was yeah. it? Marvellous. Yeah. And farmers, uh, and then I go to school with a mixture of mainly, yeah, mainly Pākehā to Avondale School Primary. Yes. From there. You were very good at school, and you came top of your class in English, didn't oh, you? Oh, sure, sure, yeah. several times, yes. yeah. Several times, and, in, and in, even in the apprenticeship class, I was uh, and, hitting high marks for theor- theory, you know, and, theoretical. And what did you like about English, Horne? What was it that appealed to you when you were young? Was it the the capacity to tell stories, or was it the oh, yes. sound of language? Oh, yes, what oh, was yes, it? yes, yes, yes. And I'm both. I could speak fluently uh, up to the age of nine, uh, Māori, mm. uh, but I could also, uh, you know, speak uh, as good as any... Uh, Pākehā, Koba, mm. at school, you know, English, you mm. know, such as it was, we used, you know, sort of Kiwiisms and all that. But, but, uh, so I was, no, I wrote at home, wrote at home. What did you write? And of course, you know, of course, uh, people, because there was, uh, there was nothing to be frightened of, because I, there were very few Marys. Yes. In the, at Aberdeen School, there's about four, four, five. I fell in love with another Mary girl, actually, but the. Was that Mary? There he is. Yeah, Mary, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me about her. What was oh, she like? Oh, a lovely lady too, you know. But uh, did she fall in love with you back or not? Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, we used to try to make love in a on a heap of spuds in the shed. You know? <laughs> God, I was sliding and slithering around. Goodness gracious! Oh no, you've always... well, we were ma- aping the uh, because uh, it's a sort of communal thing, you know. Like you hear somebody humping away at night, you know, in the meeting houses and all that. Yes, you know? yes, yes. It's pretty bloody public. You know? <laughs> bloody. Any experiment, so oh, I wonder if we could do it, you know. Yeah. Bloody kids. And did and did you love reading and stories and the sound of words? Oh yes, when, I did. When you I were did. little, I did. I mean, my dad made me read uh, read uh, New Testament stuff mainly, mm. and because uh, he's, uh, he's uh, spiritually uh, quite quite alive. Later on, he took up uh, <coughs> the Church of England. So, so you see, when we were living in the city, he'd take me to St Matthew's Church. You know, St Matthew's. Yes. Yes. And and uh, my mum would take me to the uh, humble, it was a humble little building at the very top of Queen Street, Upper Queen Street. There was a little humble sort of a, well, out of the way sort of thing. Yeah. Now they're quite prominent, you yes, know, the, yes. uh, um, Mormon churches, yeah. D- d- but they used to take me there. I, I was divided, you know, so I dragged along and I'd be mining and groaning, walking up the Bloomin' Hill, you know. And, uh, I didn't mind St Matthew's, that was close to Cook, Cook Street where we lived, you know, so... Um, so that uh, so, so all those influences, and uh, after she died, of course, my dad still kept on reading the Bible and sort of reading me the uh, different texts and making me read it because it's the only book in the house, all right? Mm. See? Mm. So I grew up kind of talking funny like, uh, like a minister, you know. So. <laughs> Are you a religious man now, honey? Oh, not particularly, no, no. no. But I, I respect any church I, I, I go to or any friend, like, you know... Friend of mine is Roman Catholic. I went to his, uh, not to his wake. What he called oh, his wake? Would yes, it be his wake? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a little church just at the top of Simon Street there somewhere. What happens to us when we die, Horny? Do you think? Is it a scary one? Oh no, 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 it's not. No, no, it's not for me. You've lost so but, many people, haven't oh, you? So oh, many oh, people oh, you've oh, loved. Oh. You've all your brothers and sisters at a very young age. Your mum at a very young age. 
You know, you've, there's been so much death in your life. Does it make you angry, death? Oh, it's got, I've gone crooked fiddle here. As you, as you, as you, yeah, 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 well, yeah. You, when you lost your friend Shirley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I lost Ferry, you see. So I'm having a go at him, you see. So. No, but the thing is, uh, the, to be on in conversation with them all the time, you know, like so that uh, not to be afraid of the buggers, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so, so that you, you drive your fear out that way by talking it out. You yes, know, yes. yourself, you see. Yes. So that... Uh, so they become more companionable and uh, understanding, you know, sort of thing like that. So, okay, I mean, I don't work through a middleman or a priest or a minister, you know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean, I do. But I want you to take us back to what happened after you left school. You were so bright and doing so well. Then you left. Was it simply that you couldn't afford to stay at school? I couldn't afford... I, could, I, I couldn't get to any... Uh, Try to, oh, I got my certificate. Mm, I got six, mm. six form proficiency. Mm, mm. And it was pretty high, pretty yeah. good. And then you went as an apprentice to New Zealand Rail, right? <coughs> to, to... Just on that uh, standard six, yeah. form two, blooming yeah. thing. Uh, usually they don't take any, yeah, um, yeah. Um, to, unless you've gone through secondary school, you know. And and that was out at Otahuhu in South Auckland. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes, yes, yes and yes. what were those days like when well, you first arrived there? Well, um, you had to wait for about eight months. They were considering this, considering this, you know, for. Just proficiency certificate, man, standard six. Mm, mm. In the end, they said, yes, we'll take him. He seemed to have very good marks in English, and uh, so that... Uh, uh, but uh, you'll have to, be, uh, you know, uh, be a boilermaker in the trade. The, the Otahuhu factory then, the works, were huge. It was about 1,500 men there, Yes, yes, there? it is. 1,500 during the war, too, you Yeah, see? yeah. 39ers started there. Yeah. Well, not long after that. You well, tried to sign up. You tried oh, to go sure, to the war, yeah, didn't you? Two or three times. yeah. And uh, and uh, they st- stopped me. They stopped me. They, they wouldn't. They said, no. And I was only 17, too, you know. And I think you had to be 18, really, to get get in. But uh, And so uh, it's a bit frustrating Frustrating for a while when you couldn't get an, an initial. Because your mates are going away, see? Mm-hmm. In a married battalion and all that, mm-hmm. see? Did you, did you lose any mates in the war? Oh, hell yes. Did yeah, you? Gosh, yeah, cousins. And, mm-hmm. you know, they'll never come back, hey? See? Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, I'd like to say, well, who, you know, well, they're warriors, you know. Mm. It's their turn to go, you know. Mm. Their turn to die. Mm. So, uh, so that's, um, yeah, my dad uh, was telling me about that when he tried to join up to the First World War, and he was frustrated too, he said. I said, what reason? Well, we got to Avondale Camp, all right, but I had to sneak there, you know, to, on there. I was underage. And you know who pulled me out? I said, no, he said, oh, my grand-aunt. She was looking after me. She had all the money to pay him for my college at Tauti College, mm, you know. Mm. And she wasn't going to waste that money to see me in the Plumman Army <laughs> and all her money floating up, you know. She wanted to be looked after herself mm, after, you mm. know. Well, now, tell me about the, the, the camaraderie of workers at Otahuhu. Because you joined the union, didn't you? And then you became very active in union politics and eventually joined the Communist Party. Oh, yes, yes. Y- they had a cell there. They had a cell, see? Yeah. And uh, they had some very, very active uh, members on the union executive railway... Mm. ASRS, Amalgamated Society of Railway Servants, a hell of a title. And what did you learn from that experience? What, what did you learn about politics? Well, I learned about, uh, well, for example, uh, I learned about um, uh, a kind of international uh, connection, you know, of working people, you know. You know, uh, Workers of the World Unite was a common sort of a, a slogan by... Uh, uh, some theoretician called Karl Marx mm-hmm. and Engel, you see, and I, uh, whom they showed me. I'm good. These were complicated reading stuff, you know. Did you read it? Oh, 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 oh,
don't even send me to Australia. There was a study class thing going over there once there. And did it speak to you, Horny? Did it, did it make sense to you what he was saying? Well, it was strange. It was a strange uh, sort of experience for a young Māori, you know, to be tied up in it because they used to, they used to just slide me a bit of paper because it had been banned, you see. Oh, they're, they're people's voice, and it came out as a, a cyclist style thing called the forward. Mm. See, and they said, "Oh, yeah, here, brother, uh, have a look at this." I said, "Oh, what is it?" And they said, "Oh, well, put it away." Is a foreman coming up? Eh? So, so I tied in my shirt. And I have a read of it in the laboratory sometimes when I get a charge lunchtime. And I said uh, later, they said, what do you think? I said, oh, that's all right. Okay, okay. Can you, on payday, they come along and say, they said, can you spare a little donation? I said, yeah, I reckon. Yeah, I reckon this will work. This speaks for us. This this, this paper? Oh, got on you, mate. Got on you, see. So bit by bit, they eased me in. Next minute, I'm, I'm tending a a branch of the Railway Workshop Communist Party branch. <laughs> Meetings at night time, you see. You met Ron Mason, R.A.K. Mason, oh, didn't you, through, uh, through, through, through the newspaper? Through Mason the, was... It was uh, called in print, and it was in the early 40s, I think. Did you know he was a poet when you first met him? No, no. And he never told you? No, no, no it was my wife that told me, you know. Yeah. Because then I was starting to write little verses up on the side of coal wagons, you know. Mm. And people <laughs> were saying, oh, Shakespeare, eh? You're Shakespeare. I said, who's he? <laughs> so did you Shakespeare, know? they said, Shakespeare. You, you didn't know who Shakespeare was? No, no. <laughs> no never, never went through secondary school. Yeah, so yeah. Never went through and but so, then they had a very good uh, library there, which organised by the workers themselves. A learning library, you know, like uh, mm, you're mm. paid. paid yeah. And so uh, it was there that I increased my knowledge. Because uh, other people drew attention to, say, Hemingway, uh, mainly Amer- American writers, mm, uh, you know, mm, about mm. John Dos Prasos, uh, Mainly leftist sort of thing, mm-hmm. all right, you know, sort of. Did you like French, it all? French writers too as well, you know, yeah. translated, you know. Did you Did you like it, Horne, when you first discovered all that stuff? Oh, hang on. I thought, gosh, this, you know, it's gave me an overview, you yeah. know, for different people how, in different lands, how they, how they worked, you see. What made you want to write? At school I was good at composition. In those days, in those days, essays, I think. And I was, oh, gee, they said, Horne... Wow, you're telling lies here. <laughs> I said, I said, well, you're supposed to be, you know, like that. You're supposed to be fairy taleish. Honey, can we talk about some of the things you love that you write about so beautifully? Oh yeah, yeah. You write the most beautiful love poems, and you write wonderfully sexy poems too. Oh, why not? Yeah, goodness gracious, you know that. Why? Why turn away? Why be uh, ashamed? You mm-hmm. know, like that. Oh, why turn your head? Mm. I don't know. Mm. It's a part of our growth, realising it and so on. I mean, we learn early. Maori kids learn early. Oh, the other thing, I think you write the most beautiful poems I've ever read about food, I think. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's <laughs> good. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, uh, that, um, and, and describing it, you know, it's got to be real for me. It's... So I, I, I describe these things rather... Uh, Lovingly, you know what I mean? In your new book, there's a wonderful poem, For the Furtherance and the Refinements of the Ancient Techniques of Groping. <laughs> Boiled so, groper heads, it begins. Do you love, do you love fish heads? Honey. Eighteen. Yes, I love Of course I do. My gosh. Gosh, it's the richest, the most nourishing sort of part of the fish, you know? You don't hit the body, goodness gracious. Oh. <laughs> Tufare, no Napuhi, speaking there with former Radio New Zealand broadcaster John Campbell.
Two whare was laid to rest on the 22nd of this month in whare paipai. Nō reira, haere e koro, haere e hoki. As you heard in the previous interview with Hone Tufare, Kai was an aspect on which he wrote about because, as he explained, it's a subject he knew about and had experienced. And for anyone who knows me, Kai is something I too have spent years researching for a PhD in. One dish which I have never seen Jamie Oliver try is pork bones and puha. Bacon bones and puha, well, actually, anything in puha. There are different varieties or types of puha, and the plant grows all over the globe. But of course, everyone always has their own special patch in which to go and pick it. Wahine Whānau Whenua is an organisation of Māori woman landowners who have been looking at growing the vegetable for commercial purposes. Wahine Whānau Whenua spokesperson, Orewa Barrett Ohia, no Ngāti Mani Opoto Tainui, took Maraia on, well I guess you could say, a journey of culinary discovery. So what's this? Kia ora look, this is the uh, puha, this one here, the taller one is the Sonchus uh, asper, and I'll take you over to see the flat one. The flat God, puha. who knew that there, were, um, that there were types? There's actually, from what I found out since we started this project, there's two main varieties, Sonchus asper, Sonchus oleraceus. And the other thing we've found out is that, uh, which I guess people that work in horticulture and crop and food perhaps already knew, is that puha grows all over the world. Um, But it's not eaten with the relish that we deal to it? Not, well we're trying to find that out. We certainly know that it was used for medicinal purposes by other indigenous people. And um, if you go on the web, you'll find that that it's prevalent in um, America. They even have a map that shows where it is, you know, throughout America. Now, over here somewhere, there was going to be the flat one. It might be over there. So there you are. Look at that lovely bunch Yum. there. Mm, look at that lovely clean and green. So just to go back to what it's all about, this Puha study involves... It's, it's been, the contract has come from Agmart and it's being held by Wahine Whānau Whenua because Wahine Whānau Whenua's aims are, are, are sust, around sustainable land use and sustainable and who farming. And Wahine Whānau Whenua? Wahine Whānau Whenua is a network of Māori women um, that are landowners, Māori women landowners. It's works operating uh, only two years it's been going and working at strength, I suppose, in the Waikato King Country or Manyapoto area. But the whole idea is for the network to be something that anybody in the country can join if they'd like to. We've only been held up by the fact that we don't have a full-time worker or the resource at the moment to take it wider. But uh, we anticipate that in the next year that, that it is going to go as wide as people uh, you know, choose to be part of it. Ah, yeah. And anyway, um, this Puha project is, sits with Wahine Whānau Whenua, and the whole idea of the study is to um, find out what it takes to grow Puha to a quality and to quantities suitable for commercial purposes. And in the first instance for our own domestic market because we anticipate 
as in, as the statistics will tell us. A lot of us can be living in urban areas, and it's not going to be that easy for us to have access to our our um, lovely puha. So we're going to need a hand, and we're not all going to be able to wait to go down to the flea market to pick it up. So the idea is to look at what we might, be, how we might be able to grow it in such a way that. Uh, we can get continuity of supply, that we get good quality puha, and that we can get it in our easily in our shops. Mm. So this is it here, right? No, that's not it actually. Okay. I don't know where the um, oloraceous you know, it's funny, Audrey, well, I thought, gone to. I thought you were going, going to take me to the uh, science lab, <laughs> and here we are walking around <laughs> the car park. <laughs> this is this is science lab. <laughs> <laughs> And thanks to um, someone from the weeds group at Hag Research, <laughs> uh, the, the gr uh, called Trevor James, um, we found that we've got all oh, we here. need here. There you are. There's the, as yeah, you can see, quite one. clearly. Yeah, it's a prickly and one that none right. of us like cutting when we were kids. But it, <laughs> people like eating that. They're the people that have their preference yeah, for that, aren't they? Nice flavour. Mm. And look, there's quite a good. Um, a good crop going good on here. Yeah. So, uh, in what we're doing now is gathering the seed um, so we can propagate and cultivate. And then we're going to have a crew out at the Waikato Research Orchard trying to, um, who are going to see what they can do about growing it in the controlled environment. Then I've got John um, all here from Tauranga looking after the indigenous side and what I mean by that is our Māori side because it grows really well over there so um, we're going to look at the conditions that uh, seem to be best for optimal growth. We also talk to people from other places like the west coast and apparently it grows really well among the lupins and we've got a mate up north who's look, keeping an eye on how it grows up there and we just at the moment just collecting all this information later on we're going to actually start looking at our recipes and getting them documented and then we're going to look at creating new product and so um, there's this whole network starting to grow like we've got a friend down at uh, Tekuiti who's got her own little factory and she's got her own thing going another which I won't talk about I'll let her talk about that so um, with, with a kitchen in it um, and so we've been talking, we'll look at how she set her f kitchen, the little factory up, um, with a view to doing something similar. And then we've also hooked in with industry. We've got uh, people, a factory up in South Auckland, uh, more like organic, they produce a lot of organic salads. We're talking with them so that when the time comes to look at its commercial uh, potential, we'll, we'll start working with people who've got that expertise so if we're looking at the um the commercial potential of it have you already examined the um the implications y262 will have around puha no <laughs> okay <laughs> no, no i mean i have no we have in a way it, it we're walking through that at the moment the first thing that we know is that puha is not native to New Zealand. Um, and the, the, what we've done to to look after things and to, in our own way is to separate out things that uh, we that you could say are 
indigenous knowledge and that the interviews with our own people will be kept for our own people because underlying this we want to think that it'll be Māori who will gain from it and that it'll be Māori commercialising it. Okay, so how do we know that Puha is not indigenous to Aotearoa? Oh, because we just did the study and the checks um, and it grows in lots of other places so people can just really go on the web to check that in the first instance. Mm. But I mean anything that's been created by our own people like our toroi and things like that, yes, right. that is definitely and indigenous yeah, yeah. and uh, it's not our, it's certainly not the aim of the the group at all to exploit any of that and let it be lost to our people. I'm interested in mm. um, what medicinal purposes it was used for, yes. like the Waikohua up here. Yes, yes, that one is mm. uh, very important. That's nice and and <laughs> <laughs> like drinking paint stripper. <laughs> if you want to drinking paint in stripper. Paint stripper. <laughs> Pretty harsh that kumarahau. <laughs> so what's this, um, this species here called? This one is the oloraceous, and oloraceous. the taller one is the, the sonchus asper. Sonchus mm. asper. But, but, you know, the other thing about it is, as far as the wahine whanau whenua study goes, we've got Pākehā scientists working with us. They've been awesome. They know heaps that is really interesting for us. And then we've got, as I say, our Māori landowners who are segregating out patches on their land to watch how it grows. But... Um, um, because sheep don't really eat it, eh? No. No. But then it doesn't grow where livestock is, mm. as you know. Yeah. But the mo- but the other important thing, as I was going to say, is that is to share the process we're going through. Somebody might find it useful for something that they want they want to study. So we're we're keeping all- our minutes are going up on our website, and well, our process website, is going up on the the wahinefanofenua.com website. So. Everything that we do is going to be out there. We're going to go the opposite to the to the idea of keeping everything secret and commercially sensitive. We're going to go the other way and just put it out Howl there. Everyone, put it out the there. Love. Yeah. Um, let's hope that that doesn't go against us. But no, um, we got this funding from Agmart and we've got this assistance from people, and we want to we want to sh- yeah we want to let let as many people that want to know um, know what we're doing. Mariah speaking with Oreo about Ohia, no Nati Maniopoto, Tainui. Makariti Papakura, who was otherwise known as Guide Maggie, led an extraordinary life. She is recognised as a Māori icon and one of our first international identities. Born in 1873, she became well-known as a guide at Whakarewarewa, particularly after the visit of the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall and York at the turn of the 20th century. She also led kapahaka groups abroad and later studied at the University of Oxford. Makareti's life is depicted in an exhibition that is currently on display at the National Library. This exhibition complements the release of a book on this exceptional Te Aroa wahine. The book is entitled Makarete, Taking Māori to the World. The author is former Radio New Zealand broadcaster Paul Diamond of Ngātihaua, Te Rarua and Ngāpohi descent. I was lucky enough to have a personal tour of the exhibition with the author, where he described who Makarete Papakura was, otherwise known as Guide Maggie. 
who was Makareti? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer in a short sentence because as you find out when you look at this woman's life, she had all these different sort of stages in her life, all these sort of names, personas. So it's hard to sum up her life in, in one sentence. But she, she was a remarkable woman. Um, maybe we've said possibly New Zealand's internet, first international media superstar perhaps. So she was born sort of at the tail end of the New Zealand wars and she had a, a Māori mother from Te Arawa and, a, and an English father which I think is key key to what sort of happened to her because she had an upbringing from her Māori side uh, in the Bay of Plenty and in Rotorua and then she was sent to these private girls' schools and, and you know, boarding schools and had a governess and so had this amazing kind of dual background and was able to leverage off that, became a really famous guide. But then became this sort of international celebrity uh, and then also took Māori to the world, which is the name of the book that we've just done about Makariti. Uh, and that's also the name of this exhibition here at the Alexander Turnbull Library. What were the attributes that made her a, an icon? What was it about her? It's, it's hard to tell, uh, but, but looking at what was written about her and the newspapers and things... Her beauty was one, one thing. She was extraordinarily beautiful. And one of the things that people say today, looking at the photos of her, and one of the things we wanted to do with this book was to showcase some of the amazing images that are in New Zealand, England and Australia and other places of her. Um, the photos look really contemporary. I think that's something else that's unusual about her, is that they look like they could have been taken yesterday. I mean, people have said, oh, that looks like Angelina Jolie, but... I think the point is, yes, it's two beautiful women, but it's also the contemporary nature of the photos. That's, that's one thing about it. Um, she apparently had this extraordinary voice. You know, people talk a lot about her voice. I mean, and she was an accomplished um, singer. She had a, a half-sister, Bella, uh, who was known as Bella Papakura. I mean, she was like Makariti, she was Bella Tom, which was this Englishman's surname, but was known as Papakura because this was a sort of a guiding trade name that they, that they um, guided under. So Makariti was known as Maggie Papakura, or Guide, guide Maggie. And they were both really, really clever um, at Kapahaka and Waiata, and um, Bella composed Waiata, but Makariti was known to sort of lead choirs of singers and things. So there's her voice, and she just had this amazing charm. I guess we'd call it charisma. Uh, she, was, she was also an amazing entrepreneur. You know, she didn't sit still. She, she organised these things. She got you know, a group of Sydney investors, took this group to Sydney, took them to Melbourne, took them to England with a whole carved village. You know, even today, that would take a lot of effort. So, the, so she was an entrepreneur. I mean, she, again, was able to... For her, I think, guiding was more... It was a, it was a career. And she was a solo mother, or what we would now know as a solo mother. She had a, a young son from her first marriage who she was supporting through her guiding, and her family have lent her diary for 1907 and 1908, which is in the exhibition, and in that diary it talks about taonga, like korowai and, and, um, and, and uh, weapons and things being sold to uh, visitors to Rotorua and the money going to help her son's upbringing. Um, the other thing that's another amazing characteristic about her was this ability to relate to people at all different levels and backgrounds. A woman who knew her called Florence Harsant, who June Northcroft Grant, who's Makariti's great niece, actually interviewed for a, an oral history project, said that, because um, she could remember Makariti about that time when Makariti was a guide, because Florence lived at Whakarewerewa in the mission house, 
She said that she could adjust her conversation to suit. She could talk to a bishop or she could talk to a low-life criminal and she'd sort of adjust. So she's sort of a bit of a human chameleon. Well, just on that, um, you mentioned earlier that she was our first international media star. She was very media savvy before the term had even been invented. That's right. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying... I, I, I wonder if she was our first media and first international media superstar. I mean, when I've asked people, George, people said that George Nepia might be the only one that would come close. As someone who was known in the media here, Australia, England, other parts of the empire as it, as it was known then. And you're right, she had this amazing ability to engage with the media. She wrote articles for the newspapers and the newspapers printed them. You know, they printed photos of her um, and of her houses that she had at Rotorua, these amazing carved houses that she'd, she'd commissioned. And it's interesting because you might have this image of these photos of Māori as often being um, purely done on the part of Pākehā, that Pākehā were kind of you know, exploiting Māori. But you, but you really can't say that with her because this diary that the family have loaned us for the exhibition says constantly, you know, got photos from Mr Parkinson, Mr all these aisles, all these different big photographers of the day. She was commissioning the portraits herself, you know, and in big quantities, you know, 12 dozen photos of self. Um, and these were given to people who she guided around Rotorua, who were typically, in those days, very wealthy people, because back then tourism was, you know, still for the, the preserve of um, quite wealthy people. So... Yes, and she very, very savvy about the media, you know, and so knew how to um, be in the media, but also when she went to England and married for the second time to this Englishman called Richard Staples Brown, then knew how to stay out of it. And, and we have letters from uh, Makareti to a good friend of hers called T.E. Dunn, who um, kept a scrapbook of all her letters, well, I, I presume it's, it's many letters that, they, uh, that she sent Dunn, and there's about there's over 50 letters. But in the letters that when she goes to England, she says, you know, under no circumstances should my old name be used. Uh, that's, I've retired from guiding, and I that's, I'm, I'm retired into private life. And that's been a real challenge in, in writing the book and putting this exhibition together, is that we don't know much about that period of her life. Because she was married to this Englishman, Richard Staples Brown, for a period of time, and then they divorced in the 1920s. And then she went to study at Oxford University, which is another one of the phases, which is sort of represented in this exhibition by a portrait of Makariti wearing this three-cornered cap, which women at Oxford wore then. Uh, and in fact, they still have the option these days of, of having these caps. And we think this is her matriculation photo, which would have been taken when she started at the university as an adult student, sort of in her 50s, in the um, 1920s. So... Yes, I mean, that, that media engagement is sort of a double-edged thing because she knew how to be in it, but she also knew how to not be in it. You mentioned earlier that she was born post the New Zealand Wars. How much of a part did that play in who, who she was? I, I think that's a really interesting question, and that's why I've always said to people that this book is not the last word on this woman. This, this is just an attempt to pull together the basic information that we know and showcase some of these amazing images because for someone who was so famous in her own time when you do try and pin the story down it is a bit murky now until I started working on the story we'd known about the father being an Englishman but we never really knew much about who he was but what I found out is that he was in the Waikato militia uh, so he was in Australia in the goldfields there and he'd come there from England his, his family were English 
And they had a scheme there where they were recruiting for the, the wars, and the idea was that if you fight in the militia, you got land. And we know that the land was taken, uh, it was the Raupatu land, taken from Māori, in this case in the Bay of Plenty. So that's what he did. He signed up and you did your year or whatever it was. And so he was at the Battle of Teranga, which was the battle after Gate Pa, um, and he was fighting there alongside Gilbert Mayer, which is really significant because Gilbert Mayer pops up in Margaretti's diary, for example, because by then Gilbert Mayer was a much older man living at um, Ohenemutu in Rotorua, and he was known as Tawa. And these, there's these references in the diary saying, oh, dear old Tawa, he's such a father to us. And he lent the money to Margaretti for the carvings for her house. But you see, when you know that he was an old soldier comrade of her father's, that suddenly you look at that differently. Then I'd wondered what um, Mr Tom, uh, William Arthur Tom, did after he was in the militia, and I was just sort of um, popping his name into a database that the Auckland City Library have for the armed constabulary. So when the soldiers from the overseas militias and things left New Zealand, New Zealand sort of had to have its own armed forces, and actually this is what the army and the police grew out of. So the armed constabulary, I popped his name into this database thinking there wouldn't be anything in there, and hello, he had two years there as well. And so he was chasing Te Kōti around the Uruweras with Gilbert Mayer and his brother William Mayer. Now, what was interesting about that was that there's a photo that's in um, Jamie Balich's New Zealand Wars documentary, and it's of a, what they called a native contingent at uh, Lake... Um, it's the lake that's known as the Green Lake, and that was where Maggie Papakura's mother was from. And uh, Rotokākahi, uh, which is in Rotorua, oh. on the way to um, Lake Tarawira. And there's this photo of this group known as the Native Contingent. There's William Mayer and there's Gilbert Mayer, and then there's the line of Māori wearing the um, blankets that they were wearing as kilts. And, and they'd just been... This was where they were based, but... Te Kōti had arrived unexpectedly in Rotorua and they tried to chase him and, and some people had been killed but they hadn't caught Te Kōti. And for some reason there was a photographer there and he took this photo of these guys lined up and on the right hand side there's this Parker, who looks like, we, we, we know of one photo of um, Makariti's father but this guy does look like the, the, the image that we've got of Mr Tom. So we've put that in the book to say is this him? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the village where this is taken is where Makariti's mother and her half-sister Bella's mother both lived, and it's about the time that Bella was born. So it starts to sort of point to, well, mm. why else, who else would that Pākehā on that row be? Mm. So we've, we've found out a bit, bit more information about him because what happened was that this William Arthur Tom had a child to a Māori woman, and then... For some reason, they, they thought that this woman wasn't going to have any more children, so they, they, he had children to her sister, and that was Makariti and her brother Dick, or, or uh, Richard Tom. So, so that these, these um, children were brought up by the Māori extended family, but looking at Māori land court records, there was a bit of movement from you know, Galatea, which was again where the armed constabulary were based, and then um, other Matata, which is where Makariti was born again, that was an area where the, where the army were based. And then the relationship ended, and Mr Tom married another woman, um, Mary Finlayson in Wairoa. And that was actually where Makariti married her first husband in Wairoa. Mm. But then um, that marriage ended in divorce, and, and then she moved back to Rotorua and, and became a guide there. But, yeah, we, I don't claim to understand what exactly that means, but when you know about this context of coming out of the New Zealand wars and, you know, the, the sense of the country trying to put that behind itself. 
and, and then at the same time, you know, population of Māori dropping yeah. to 40-something thousand where they thought we would die out. And then you've got this person who's beautiful, who's educated, articulate, intelligent, Māori and European. They loved her. They said, oh, she, you know, you'd never know she was Māori. She embodies the best of the two races. And, you know, so she was sort of like a poster girl. So, so the unanswered question in this story is, you know, to what extent was she used by mm. politicians and, and the like? And to what extent does she use them? See, and that's why this ain't the last, this isn't the last word. You know, there's so much more that, that, that's to be written about her, whether that, you know, whenever that's done. But one of my hopes for this book and this exhibition is that more information will come to light. And, and it's already started to happen. Various people have been, been in touch. Because this woman had so many different names, you know, Margareti is Margaret and Māori, but she had all these different names, two married names, you know, the guiding names. Often information about her is not obvious. So my hope is that, you know, as people go through the attics, <laughs> that they find that, that there'll be more and more information that'll flesh out the story about this woman. And I think we will understand more about what being born at the tail end of those wars meant for her life. Diamond, nor Nati Hawa, Terarawa, Napohi, on the life of Makariti Papakura. Ane Tifakamarma, a Tifakataki nei. Kuhinga Terako, Otewao Nui Atane. A tortara in the great forest of Tane has fallen. This saying announces that an important person has passed away. Ko Erurekura Tene, Noroto Oteati Honui, a Paparangi. Next week, Mariah checks out the Parihaka Peace Festival, which was held earlier this month. And we begin our build-up to Waitangi Day. Ki tikaira wiki wiki mihini e tēnei wiki, ko Gareth Watkins, kia ora hoa. Ki ngā kaikururo e tēnei wiki, ngā mihi. Kia tātakato, heia tērā wiki, mauri ora. <laughs>